Hi, I'm Seth Roseman. And I'm Jonathan Fuller. And welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine. Each week, Seth and I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions. What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it. Because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible as we read it together. So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if you've been to seminary like us, if you want to know more about the Bible but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us and let's tell a good story today. Seth, hello. Hey, Jonathan. How are you for this premiere episode of No Experts Allowed, our new podcast? I'm great. I'm really excited for this. I'm so excited too. I know we're jumping on the trend of being in quarantine and sitting around and being two white dudes who think that the things that we have to say are important enough for other people to listen to it, but I couldn't be more excited to do this with you. I'm really, I'm really thrilled. Uh, So I'm really excited that we're also going to be jumping into one of my favorite passages of scripture uh, for this Pentecost Saturday or Pentecost Eve, if you will, text from Matthew. But before we jump into the text, I have a question. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you have 1 million overly engaged Instagram followers, but be unable to post anything, or be forced to post some sort of Instagram content every hour with no followers whatsoever. Wow. <sighs> Wait, what are they engaged with? So it's like, it's people that like are craving content from you ah, specifically. Okay. So okay. you have a million people that consider themselves fans of you that want your content, but you can't give them anything. Or you have to post every hour, sleeping not included, but like, Every waking hour, you need to be posting content, but you don't have any followers. Okay, definitely the first one. Definitely not posting anything to people that are overly engaged. Because I'm just not really that good at social media in general. And if I had to post every hour, even if they started engaged, their engagement would wane really fast. It would not be long if I posted every hour till they till they had unfollowed, that they had deleted their Instagram page, that they were, they were gone. Yeah. I feel like posting content every hour with no followers at all is kind of how I live my life sometimes. Like on days when I'm feeling a little bit more active on Instagram, like no one's responding to this. Not really. Like I've got a few, a few faithful friends who will give me like the little thumbs up emoticon in response to my story or give me that, give me that double tap for the like. But I feel like the comparison here is like either being me normally, but posting more often or being like Beyonce who has like tons of followers, but doesn't really take the time to give a, give much content. You know, I'm not speaking from experience, but I definitely follow Beyonce. She doesn't post enough. I deleted my Instagram because I I wasn't really posting that often. Mm. So I just kind of thought it was a waste of like, I was spending too much time on it. 
I wasn't really posting. And then when I was posting stuff, it was dumb. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, my Instagram's basically become my dog's Instagram now anyway. So I'm not sad about it. All right, Seth, thank you for participating in what would you do in this particular situation? All right, so Seth, I think this is a great time to transition over to our biblical text. So why don't you go ahead and read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jonathan, why did you pick the NRSV for us this week? All right, Seth. So the new, new Revised Standard Version, the NRSV, is one of my go-tos for studying the Bible. Uh, it was pretty standard for me, both in our undergraduate ed education and in my seminary education as kind of a widely accepted scholarly text. Um, and one of the reasons I appreciate it the most is it does take on some uh, commitments of modern scholarship, such as being more inclusive maybe than the original text would be when it comes to issues of gender and issues of clarifying certain certain points of view as you know, that the original text might have clouded up. One of the things that I appreciated is that it does a good job at emphasizing what was originally trying to be communicated. Of course, it, you know, in order to translate from one language to another, you've got to do a little bit of cleaning up. The NRSV really tries to communicate what was the sentence structure, what were the words that they were trying to use as these texts were being formed based on the, the copies and the original languages that they have now. So, NRSV doesn't always read incredibly well uh, because of that, because it's trying to stick closer to the original Hebrew or Greek. But I find for passages like this one uh, that it, it offers a real, a really pretty accurate reading of what, for in this case, Jesus was trying to say. It's really the standard bearer for most biblical scholarship in the modern day. So as you had the opportunity, though, to read that text, and we start thinking about our first question, what's the story? I'm wondering what stood out to you. I'm sure you've read uh, the Beatitudes before and have heard them spoken about a number of times. But today, what, what stood out to you? The first thing that stood out to me today was that he sits down and then his disciples come to him. Mm. And it's only then that he begins to speak. I don't know if I had ever really realized kind of the sequence of that. He sits down, then the disciples come, and then he begins to speak. I've never thought about how it changes the story if his disciples are there or what that might mean or 
or how that might affect the story in any way. So that was the first thing. Mm-hmm. And then the next one, and this has always kind of fascinated me, is that the pure in heart will see God. What an interesting, mm-hmm. like just ju- the kind of juxtaposition between pe- people who are pure in heart and then seeing God is always really fascinating to me. What do you think stands out to you about about that imagery in particular? Is it because it feels a little disconnected, like pure in heart being related to your ability to see? Is that what you're you're referring to? Well, I think some of the, on the other Beatitudes, it seems like the juxtaposition is almost an opposite. So if you're mourning, then you'll be comforted. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. And then you get to pure in heart and then you'll see God. It doesn't seem like the, like the opposite in some way to me yeah and it also there's in the ones you mentioned especially at least in the way it's being communicated it's about if there's something you're missing if there's something you're lacking then you're going to be offered that so if you're mourning if you're if you're grieving a loss you will be receive comfort if you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness you will be filled but the pure in heart seeing god connection isn't quite so explicit so that, that is a really interesting, I think an interesting twist in the way that this this passage is set up. And I, I appreciate too, the way that you highlighted the beginning of this text, because so quickly we're trying to get to the, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit and moving on through those. But those first verses are important because they make an important connection to what was happening in Jesus's life and ministry to this point. Uh, in the book of Matthew, there are several times throughout the book where Matthew, or where Matthew depicts, or whoever wrote Matthew depicts Jesus as um, sitting down and starting to teach for a long time, at least in the amount of space it takes up in the book. And Matthew 5 through 7, uh, which is, you know, this passage starts that, that section, which we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. That's the first one of those in the book of Matthew. To this point, the extent of Jesus's ministry in Matthew has been kind of naming and calling his disciples. So he hasn't done any miracles yet. He's been baptized and has been driven into the wilderness to be tempted. And he comes back and starts calling his disciples. And apparently, as we see in the beginning of this passage, a crowd starts to follow. So he starts to garner some attention. And this moment then becomes the first opportunity that he has, as you, as you so rightly pointed out, to really sit down and start telling his disciples what he is all about, what he envisions the kingdom of God is all about, as we see throughout uh, all, all of these teachings in the next few chapters, too, that these, these kind of short, quippy sayings really set up in, a, in an extensive way. So I think that matter of timing is, is really important here, too. Like, is there anything that strikes you about these verses being kind of, at least in, in how Matthew is set up, really early? in Jesus's ministry. I always think about the first day of class and how your professor is kind of setting the tone. Like, you know, sometimes we call it syllabus day and we act like it's a joke and we don't really want to be there. And you're just sure. like, okay, give me the syllabus yeah. and tell me what I need to do. And then maybe I'll get out early and then I can see my friends. It's, it's the beginning of the year. Mm. Yeah. But I wonder if like the first class is really, is just that where you set the tone. You see, yeah. This is what we're going to build on. This is mm. what we're going to do. Yeah. And you think about it too, if you extend that metaphor out to the disciples, you know, 
thinking about your role as a student on the first day of school too. You know, you might be a little nervous. You might have some uh, new supplies or some things that feel kind of different or different to you, like a new notebook, a new pencil case. Uh, <laughs> you're, as you're getting older, maybe new laptop or whatever you have, it's kind of blank and you're, you're sitting down and these are the moments that I, I think you said it really well are setting the tone for not only the next few chapters, but really for Jesus's ministry. And I think a lot of what we do as well looks to these passages as foundational for how we understand the reign of reign and realm of God in the world and in our midst. These short sayings paint such a beautiful picture. And I think you identifying Jesus as a teacher, even that metaphor, and is a really is a really powerful image here because this process of Jesus, both here and then in the in the following chapters and verses, Jesus is really teaching. He's teaching like a rabbi. He's teaching like a Jewish teacher would. He would take these themes and ideas that would certainly be familiar to the people who are hearing them, but maybe put a new spin or a new twist on them. And so you see this pattern throughout Matthew 5 through 7, especially of Jesus saying things like, you have heard it said this, but I say to you this. And he takes these concepts and these ideas that probably were familiar to his disciples and if there were others nearby that were listening, that I'm sure based on the fact that they were trying to get away from the crowds, that there probably were, um, they might have you know, received that with differing levels of acceptance because he was teaching in a new way and he was putting forward new ideas um, as, as, he was, as, as he was teaching the disciples. I, I really appreciate Rob Bell's book, Velvet Elvis, um, as a way to look into how some of the nuances of, of Judaism that I certainly from my culture and background do not understand inherently, but how those ideas and practices really add a new layer of meaning to what Jesus does, what Jesus did. So as Jesus practices this method of teaching, he keeps coming back to this one word that in this translation we hear as the word blessed. I think this word has a really unclear definition in how we utilize it today, especially in religious set settings and contexts. So what do you think, like what, Seth, what comes to mind for you when you hear blessed? At oh, least from a, maybe from like a cultural standpoint. Yeah, I think of like almost like a, the pr prosperity gospel. I think of mm. almost the prosperity gospel. I get some type of material thing and then I that's how I'm blessed. And I posted on Instagram. Nice. You right? figured out my connection. Exactly. WWYDITPS question. Yep. That's exactly where I was thinking about. I posted on Instagram with the hashtag blessed. Yeah. I don't want to question intention behind that either, because and I totally agree that it's like this, this manner of like misconstruing some measure of privilege or prosperity as God's favor or God's blessing. Um, because I think about, you know, people who have families and they're posting again on Instagram, something where they're appreciating their partner or their children or other family members or friends. They may truly feel like those relationships are, are gifts from God in their lives. And I think that's a reasonable thing to think. But 
what I'm hesitant to hesitant to put forward is this idea that as you as you alluded to, God just gives us stuff because God likes us best. You know, it was Jesus that happened to have that one car that was parked close to the grocery store back out just in time for you to get that prime parking spot. I, I just have a hard time thinking that honestly that God cares about stuff like that. I know God cares about us and the things that we experience in our lives, but I feel like this might be talking about something a little bit bigger. So as I'm, as I'm, I'm looking into this, these passages here and the usage of this word blessed, there's some, as there always is in translation work, there's some cool questions that you can ask that I don't really want to get into here because that's not what we're about. But it doesn't necessarily seem that Jesus is only using this word blessed as just like a descriptor. So, you know, the poor in spirit are blessed. The construction is such that both blessed and whatever he is describing as blessed are the subject of the sentence. So, so blessed is almost this new category of people. So this, this term that I'm sure was utilized by the religious elites of the time as it is today, Jesus was defining who's, who's part of the people that God looks on in a special way. And rather than identifying the powerful, those that are in the inner circles of society, Jesus keeps pointing to people that are on the margins is challenging a lot of popular religious and cultural assumptions. God's blessing rests with people who are hurting. It's not here about the people who are powerful, who have the authority. In fact, that might be turned more on its head. After talking kind of generally about blessed are those uh, who, those who mourn, talking about those people out there, maybe the idea of someone mourning. Then he turns to his disciples who are with him at the end and said, blessed are you when you're persecuted, when you're hurt, when you're teased, when you're mocked because of me. And that moment of personalization too, you, you talked about setting the tone earlier. I think that's such a beautiful way for how, how we can represent what Jesus is talking about and how Jesus' ministry is going to go because it's both about this big picture that totally transcends any individual person, but it's also about the entirety of each individual person too. Like we can all be wrapped up, can be all be, all be caught up in that broader work that God is doing through Jesus in the world. And we don't have to lose ourselves in it, but we actually become part of something bigger that totally encompasses all that we are and is about restoring all that we are to full and new life in Christ. And Jonathan, I'm just thinking about the you in terms of kind of Matthew's audience, like it works in his narrative to have Jesus talking to the disciples as you. But I also think Matthew might be addressing his audience at the time too. The people who are, who are being reviled and being persecuted and are having all kinds of evil, false evil uttered against them on account of Jesus. I wonder if, if it's not kind of a secret kind of bone that he throws to his, his sure, audience yeah. almost. Mm. I was always taught in seminary never to use you in your sermon, to always say we, to, mm. to include yourself too. But I, I sometimes just think 
that you have to say you. Sometimes I just want to say, I just want to talk to everyone who's there. And I like, I which we just doesn't do. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes well, I, I think, think it's, you need you. Yeah, and maybe this is my propensity to beat myself up on occasion, but I'm much more prone to use you when it's a positive affirmation. <laughs> and then we, when it's something that we need to work on and correct. Uh, but I think, I think you're right. I think, you know, those hard, kind of hard, fast rules are helpful in some senses, especially when we're starting off to develop those kinds of uh, exercises on a regular basis. But at times too, there, there are things that need to be shared and need to be an, a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation. But I think as long as that is still an opportunity to extend the invitation to God's table and grow rather than feel shame or regret, I think that can be, I think that can be a real gift. I think it is here. Jonathan, thanks so much for walking us through that. Sure thing. I I have this mammoth commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And just its its size makes me not even want to dare to open it. Like it, right. it's about it's like about two and a half inches thick. And it's and it's also like wide. Yeah. And I'm just like, I don't even want to go there. I'm just like this the sheer size like keeps me from from ever opening it. So thanks for walking us through it in a way that wasn't like weeding through 700 pages. I'll try my best. But hey, I, I still want to talk about though, like what this can what this can mean for us today. So well, let's talk about that question, our other question, our second question, also important. What's the point? I really want to revisit the idea, and you said it too, you said it earlier. It's like you're looking at my notes. The idea of hashtag blessed and what it means to be part of the people of God. Um, so I think on one hand, there is, there is some reality and some truth to the idea that the good things that we experience, the things that we might label as gifts, I think it's a reasonable thing to call those gifts or blessings from God. Um, if we are able to hold the view that God is a God of love and God desires to extend things that offer abundant life to those who are part of the human family that we believe God loves unconditionally and equally. I think that's a a realistic place to start extending some gratitude towards God. Where that viewpoint becomes challenging and problematic though, is when blessing becomes an identifying marker between us and them. So in the example I gave earlier, about someone who shares, you know, posts or photos of their family or their children and says, wow, what a blessing from God. What do you say then to the family who can't have children or whose children have died tragically at a young age or at a too young age by the hands of our criminal justice system? Like where, where does that dividing line end? because we can't both call God one who loves all and seeks that all would come to know the abundant life that Jesus offers and have those kinds of distinctions. That's not the love of God. And so I'm really hesitant to really stick with the idea of blessing as a gift 
do you feel any sense of connection with that or or do you think that that's a that that's a good way good way to start thinking about god's blessing that sounds like a loaded question but i genuinely want to know what you think <laughs> well i just think if we keep we just think about it as being positive like in terms of material gain we get all this stuff yeah um, and it makes us happy and it brings smiles to our face right i think some translations even use the term happy instead mm -hmm. of blessed and i just wonder if if kind of this idea of being persecuted like is the antidote to all of those those happy connotations yeah i think a lot of i think a lot of the things that we've you know a lot of the things that jesus calls blessed here are really antithetical to that idea of hashtag blessed that I think we would refer to today. So I think, I think God is, is a God whose favor rests on those that God has deemed part of God's people. Uh, but I don't know that those definitions are how we want them to fall because no matter how I try to make those definitions, I always want to include, include myself in the, on the inside. And honestly, as I was thinking through this and thinking about the ways that the idea of blessing or God's favor has been used throughout scripture, rather than thinking of blessing as a gift, the word that came to mind for me was calling. So you look at the story of the people of Israel throughout the Hebrew Bible, their liberation from Egypt and their delivery into the, into the promised land. They were not saved, so to speak, they were not liberated so that they could continue just, you know, receiving all the benefits from God or, you know, even worse yet, like perpetuating the same things that were done against them. They were asked to be God's instrument. And that's how it seems to be the pattern of how God works with people in the world is that God enters into these partnerships where there is laboring together to bring forth something new, something right and good. And until Jesus came along, all the efforts that were intended to set that straight, those opportunities for partnership really fell short. And since Jesus, a lot of those opportunities for partnership still fall short. It's a, an old cliche saying but we're not blessed for ourselves. We're blessed to be a blessing to others. We are given the light and love of Christ to share that with the world. I think that's the passage that immediately follows this is you are the light of the earth and a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And you are the salt of the earth. These, all these things that are intended to project this idea of you're welcome and you're included, even if you're hurting and you are called to extend that same healing, that same comfort to others who are experiencing that as well. And in that we're all kind of wrapped up in again and enmeshed in the work of the divine in our midst. I'm trying to think how you could, you could read or maybe rewrite the Beatitudes almost with the word calling as the emphasis, not mm -hmm. blessed. Uh, so I thought we'd just give it a shot with the message and we'll see how it goes. So I'll just oh. read uh, the same things that we read earlier, but I'll substitute called for blessed. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside 
Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You're called when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're called when you feel you've lost what's most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're called when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're called when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're called when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're called when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're called when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're called when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves called every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they're uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds and know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Oh, that's so good. Man, the ending's really cool in that too. I love that. Oh, that moment is so good. I'm so glad that you so glad that you brought that up and thought to kind of play around with the text that way. That's such a such a gift to be able to, to do with with the Bible as it uh, as it points us back to God and helps us connect with God in new ways, even with texts that we we think we know really well. You think that's a good place to stop? Can I pray for us? That'd be great if you'll pray us out. I think that'll end our first show. It will. Podcast. Can we call it a show? Sure, why not? Okay. We don't know if anyone's going to listen to it anyway. <laughs> Just our wives. <laughs> Let's pray. Abundant God, you give life to all who need it, food and drink to those who hunger and thirst. You have blessed us, not to revel in or hoard your blessing, but to share your love and kindness with our neighbors. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one who sat down on the mountain to teach us, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for walking us through that story. Thanks for helping me tell it. <laughs>